court cases that end in a conviction, victims and their families are often allowed to make an impact statement, a statement of record of what they had before the crime and what they were left with after. But for unsolved crimes, crimes that don't end in a conviction, or serious life-altering events that aren't crimes at all, there is nowhere for the victims or their families to speak. Impact Statement is a new podcast that talks to victims and their families about life before, during, and after a life-changing event. Impact Statement combines compelling narration with interview clips to give a clear retelling while allowing those who have been affected the most to speak. Impact Statement can be found in Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Thirteen-year-old Brandy Lynn Myers left her apartment building, walked through her neighborhood, and never came home. That was in 1992, and she was only 13 years old. 23 years later, there was a major break in the case. It's been nearly four years since that day, and no one has been charged in the disappearance and presumed murder of Brandy Lynn Myers. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me today is Allie. How are you today, Allie? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. It's a little hard to watch the show wrap up, but we do have more episodes coming. To answer a few questions that we've been getting, no, neither of us will be at CrimeCon. Our attendance was largely dependent on Insight, but I will be at the True Crime Podcast Festival 2019. You can get tickets at tcpf2019.com. It's in July. It's in Chicago. Ticket prices are really affordable, and there are so many great shows coming, so definitely go check out the website to see who's there. Lars from Rusty Hinges will be joining me. For those of you who listen to my other podcast, Impact Statement, you've actually heard this story. I interviewed Brandy Meyer's sister, Kristen, but we've had this case suggested to us a few times, and I want to say thank you to Nico for bringing this case back up to us recently. I talked to Kristen about covering it on Insight using the information I had from her, and she was thrilled. She wants this story to really get out there and to get as much coverage as she can for her sister's case. Brandy and Kristen grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and they both attended Sunny Slope Elementary School. In 1992, Brandy was a sixth grader. They lived in an apartment complex that was within walking distance of their school, and they lived there with their mother, Cheryl, and their stepfather, Lester. Kristen was younger than Brandy by two years. Brandy loved school, even though she struggled. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children says she'd been diagnosed with brain damage, and she was in special education classes. As we like to say on this show, remember this because it will come up again later. Brandy also had a vision impairment, which made her somewhat afraid of the dark. Specifically, she was afraid to be outside in the dark since she couldn't see well. She wouldn't stay out playing after dark, particularly if she was alone. Brandy was a happy child who spent a lot of her time playing with Kristen. 
She did have some trouble at school and in the neighbourhood with kids picking on her, but she also had a solid group of friends who appreciated her for who she was. Kristen said she fully believes that Brandy's learning disabilities and struggles wouldn't have held her back in life. Brandy would have eventually overcome these things and pursued her dreams. She wanted to work with animals and perhaps become a veterinarian. Both Cheryl and Lester worked, so the girls would walk home from school and wait at the apartment complex until they came home. Cheryl would usually get home around 6 or 6.30, and a neighbor would keep an eye on the girls. They wouldn't necessarily stay in our apartment, but she'd keep an eye on them as they were playing outside and just be there if they needed anything. Unless one of them was in trouble and got grounded, which according to Kristen was usually her, they would be outside playing pretty much year-round. The day Brandy disappeared was Tuesday, May 26, 1992. Brandy and Kristen walked home from school, as was their usual routine, and headed outside to play. Brandy had recently participated in a school readathon where neighbors would pledge a certain amount of money per page she read. This readathon was a fundraiser for a field trip that Brandy was really looking forward to, so she was excited to have earned $13 towards this field trip. She was really proud of herself, and her stepdad had told the media that she treated this fundraiser very seriously. The money had been due at the school already, but Brandy had a few pledges that she hadn't collected yet, and she really wanted to finish it up and collect everything she earned. So she and Kristen were supposed to go door-to-door after school to collect the money together, except they didn't have the address list with the pledges. Kristen is under the impression that the school had it, but it doesn't really matter why so much as it matters that they just didn't have the list. But this wasn't a huge issue for them because their mother had only let them go door-to-door to houses between their apartment and the school. So basically they just had to retrace their steps back to the school and knock on doors and hopefully remember who pledged what. It was just a few blocks. The field trip was the next week on a Thursday, so only nine days away. Brandy didn't want to wait to go out, but Kristen didn't want to go with her. Kristen was only 11, but a boy she crushed on had come over to the apartment complex to hang out, and Kristen basically just told Brandy that Brandy was a nerd and she didn't want to be seen with her. As you can imagine with what came next, that haunted Kristen for years. Years and years and years. This is just one of those things siblings say to each other and then it's forgotten the next day. Or Brandy would have come home and said it hurt her feelings, Kristen would have apologised and they would have been back to being best friends the next afternoon. But when Brandy didn't come home, these last words Kristen said followed her like a cloud. She was just a kid, but it's hard to see things that way sometimes. Brandy told the neighbor who was keeping an eye on her that she was heading out to collect the pledges, and this neighbor put the time at roughly 5 p.m. Kristen remembers watching Brandy walk away from the apartment complex and head in the direction of the school. Brandy was wearing a green t-shirt, a jean skirt, and pink high tops. And she was, of course, wearing her glasses, which had thick lenses, and they were that oversized style that was popular in the 1990s. 
At 6.30, Cheryl came home from work and Brandy wasn't there. She did the usual check of friends' houses and drive around the neighborhood. But when she couldn't find her, she called the police and they responded quickly. As soon as it started getting even a little dark, they knew something was wrong. Brandy's limited vision meant she never stayed out alone past dark. A search was conducted immediately. Brandy wasn't seen as a likely runaway, though they couldn't rule that out quite yet. It was also possible she had just gone to a friend's house without telling her parents and didn't think to call home or didn't notice the time. Her parents certainly didn't think that was likely, but there was no evidence of an abduction. No one saw a strange man in a car or a car they didn't recognize or hearing a scream or a fight. The only thing to do was search, and they began that Tuesday night. This search included an air search, police swarming the neighborhood and looking in people's backyards and in their sheds and outbuildings, and even looking in people's cars. Volunteers joined Wednesday, and this massive scale search went on for days. Two days after Brandy went missing, the body of a teen girl who resembled Brandy was found. It isn't clear to me if she was found while they were searching for Brandy or if she just happened to be found in this time frame. A man on an ATV was riding on some undeveloped property about a 15-minute drive from Brandy's house when he saw a human hand sticking out of a pile of trash. It was the body of a teenage girl. The girl's hair was similar to Brandy's and she also had thick, oversized glasses. It was pretty clear from the start that this body could not be Brandy. She appeared a bit older, but more importantly, she had obviously been dead longer than two days. But because their appearance was so similar and they were in the same area, there's always been a question if these two cases were connected. Connecting the cases early on was nearly impossible because they couldn't even figure out who the girl was. They ran her description against known missing persons and open runaway cases, and they came up empty. She was a teenager who no one seemed to be looking for. She was buried as Jane Doe number 921169, and she remained a Jane Doe for 19 years, longer than she would have been alive. All that is known about her was her approximate age and that she'd been strangled to death before being thrown in a trash heap. There was a composite sketch created, but no one came forward to identify her. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Fashion is my world. I am at my happiest when I can take a random pile of clothes and turn it into a look that feels like it's off the runway at Fashion Week. But even though that's what I love to do, I don't really have the experience to make it my full-time career yet. That's why I started my own fashion blog with Squarespace. With their gorgeous templates and -and drag-and-drop tools, it took me no time at all to create a blog that feels representative of who I am. I can showcase photos of my work, share my resume, and connect each post to my social media to hopefully turn my passion into my career. Take the next step to bring your passions to life. Go to squarespace.com slash passion for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code PASSION to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com passion and use offer code PASSION. But in 2011, Maricopa County received a federal grant to help with unidentified deaths. 
In the first year, they exhumed 24 bodies and were able to identify four of them. The money was used both to pay for forensic testing like DNA, but also to pay for dedicated detectives to do just old-fashioned police work in tracking down leads. This Jane Doe had been on everyone's radar since the day her body was found, so it's not surprising she was on the list for the first year of the program. And they were able to identify her in March of 2011. The first step was to have her body exhumed for DNA collection. Then detectives poured over 1,600 reports of teenage runaways from 1991 through 1994 who could possibly be this girl. And they didn't limit themselves just to open cases. They looked at cases of runaways who were later located because the thought was she could possibly have been a chronic runaway and she hadn't been reported every time she had run away. So they looked at a couple years after 1992 as well in the event that there was a delay in reporting her missing. Detectives spent months crossing off names as they found proof of the various young women being alive past 1992. Eventually, they were down to the final 100 or so names of runaways that matched the Jane Doe, but didn't have easily found proof they were alive, such as driver's license issued or even an arrest record. They organized their list alphabetically to start investigating the names more deeply, but they didn't make it far through the list. 16-year-old Shannon Anok was a solid possibility and near the top of the alphabetical list. She had a history of running away from foster care. She didn't have an open case, though. The last time she was reported as a runaway, she was eventually found and returned to her placement. It was the previous closed runaway reports that put her on their radar many times over. Shannon had been reported as a runaway 40 times between 1989 and 1991, So casting a wider net was a success in this regard because this is the exact scenario they anticipated. Shannon was not reported missing the last time she ran away. The next step was to locate a biological relative and they were able to track down Shannon's birth mother who provided a DNA sample. That was when they were able to conclusively prove that Jane Doe 921169 was indeed Shannon. Shannon's life was nearly as tragic as her death. Detectives referred to her as a throwaway child. Shannon's birth mother was sexually assaulted at 16 and became pregnant with her. She tried to raise her daughter but eventually turned her over to child services when Shannon was three because her mother could not care for her. It's not clear how long Shannon was in foster care or how many homes she was in, but she was eventually adopted into a family that initially seemed prepared for her, but they weren't. As Shannon got older, her behavioral issues became more severe. At 10, she was already running away and having run-ins with the law. Her adoptive family took her to get help, and the therapist asked her what she wanted her tombstone to say, since her running away was dangerous and could end in her death. It sounds like he meant it as a bit of a shock to her system to dissuade her from putting herself in dangerous situations like this. But instead, she said it should just be blank since no one cared for her in life, so why would they care for her after death? To repeat, she was only 10 when she said this. Her adoptive parents placed her back into the system at the age of 12 when they were unable to handle her needs. So we have a 12-year-old who already was having behavioral issues and clearly attachment issues, losing yet another family. Shannon repeatedly ran away from her foster placements, both home placements and group homes. 
In early 1992, she had spent some time in a juvenile facility, and within a month of release to a group home, she ran away again. This time, no one reported her as a runaway, and child services later petitioned the court to have her removed from their responsibility since she could not be located. She was never entered into any system as a runaway or as a missing. Had she been reported a runaway in 1992, she never would have been buried as a Jane Doe. It's only because detectives in 2011 thought to look at closed runaway cases that Shannon was identified. That was a bit of an aside that occurred during the search for Brandy. But we feel Shannon's story was important to tell, and also we need to consider if her case was connected to Brandy's. But let's get back to Brandy's story. There were a few sightings of Brandy after she left her apartment building on the day she went missing. One of them is the most widely reported one. It's even included in Brandy's National Centre for Missing and Exploited Children's listing. But the family believes that this specific tip was fabricated and they're worried it hampered the investigation from the start. So first, let's all tell you what the tip was. Another teenager, who we will call Jill, lived in the same apartment complex as Brandy and told police that she was with Brandy that evening. Jill is not her real name, but she was a minor at the time this happened, and her name isn't widely reported, so we won't use it here. Anyway, Jill said she went with Brandy to collect money, and then Brandy wanted to go spend the money at a store on candy and toys. So they walked to the Smitty's grocery store, which was in the opposite direction of where Brandy was headed when she left the apartment complex, and it was outside of where she was approved to roam. She was only given permission to go between their home and her school to collect the pledges. Jill went into the store to use the bathroom, and when she came out, Brandy was gone. This puts the last place Brandy was seen at that Smitty's grocery store around 7 p.m. So after Cheryl had come home and begun searching, but before the police had been called. The police dogs did hit on Brandy's set near the Smitty's, which backed up this story. Except that this was the neighbourhood grocery store, and Brandy possibly could have been there recently enough for the dogs to pick up her scent. So as to why the family does not believe this widely reported tip, the first is that this girl, Jill, well, she wasn't a friend of Brandy's, not even close. She was one of the girls at school who picked on Brandy. Brandy would not have gone anywhere with her, and Jill likely wouldn't have offered to hang out with Brandy either. Second, the idea that Brandy was going to spend the money she collected on candy and toys made no sense to them. Brandy had somewhere the money was meant to go, the field trip, and she really wanted to go on that trip. She wasn't the impulsive type who would have spent the money on something little when she was looking forward to something big. So when Kristen started looking into Brandy's disappearance as an adult, this tip really stood out to her as odd. She needed more information and tracked down Jill. She called to ask more questions about what happened and what, if anything, Jill saw that day. Instead of providing Kristen with more specific details, Jill denied she ever made that statement. And in fact, she claimed she hardly remembered Brandy's disappearance at all. Media reports on the statement don't refer to Jill by name, but the police report absolutely does. So someone made the statement, and the police say it was Jill. But here Jill was, 20 years later, denying it. 
It's also odd that Jill said she didn't really remember Brandy's disappearance. The apartment complex they lived in wasn't sprawling. Neighbors were aware of each other, and if the cops were swarming in one area, everyone would know about it and could see what was happening. Jill also went to school with Brandy, and this would have been what everyone was talking about. There was a helicopter in the sky over the neighborhood that night with a spotlight, and the police were everywhere. How does she not really remember this? I mean, she wasn't five or six. She was more like 13. This seems like something you would remember. Kristen feels like Jill is distancing herself from the event. I first thought that Jill might know more than she's saying, and that's why she's trying to get out from being connected to the case. But Kristen sees it differently. She thinks this was probably just a child looking for attention in the situation, and now she's an adult, she can appreciate the consequences of what she did. But instead of calling the police and recanting her statement, she's denying involvement entirely. The other option is that in interviewing all the kids in the neighbourhood, Jill's name got attached to the statement made by someone else. This doesn't entirely fit because police surely would have followed up with her later or at least made sure to get detailed contact information in the event they wanted to follow it up. After all, this is the last person who would have seen Brandy, but this is the only other possible explanation I can think of as to why Jill would deny making a statement attributed to her. Kristen did ask Jill to call police and withdraw her statement if it was a lie. She could also call and just say she never made the statement and that they needed to track down the person who did. But it does not appear like she has ever done either of these. Another new podcast suggestion for you guys. You know I love bringing these to you, especially now that we're wrapping up Insight. And this one I'm super excited about because it's hosted by my friend Lainey. You can hear Lainey on our episode about Father Hans Schmidt, the murdering priest. She is now hosting a new podcast called Crimes of Passion. Love is patient, love is kind, but sometimes love can be deadly. Every week, Parcast Network is bringing you this new podcast, Crimes of Passion. It's going to look at what happens when true love meets true crime. It analyzes the relationship dynamics and psychology that lead to betrayal, crimes, even murder. New episodes are out every Wednesday. So right now, the first episode on Wilma Hoyt is out. And then look for upcoming episodes on Amy Fisher and Joey Buttafuoco, Lorena Bobbitt, and... Jody Arias. Search for and subscribe to Crimes of Passion wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, just search Crimes of Passion or you can visit parcast.com slash passion to listen now. Another reason the story about going to Smitty's doesn't fit is that it is a discrepancy in the timeline based on other sightings of Brandy that night. She was seen going door-to-door in the area she was supposed to be in. A friend of Brandy's told authorities that Brandy had asked her if she would go door-to-door with her, but this friend was leaving to go somewhere with her mom and couldn't go. Jill was not with Brandy at this point, and Brandy would have already been away from the apartment complex. Other neighbors came forward and told police that they saw 
Brandy as she knocked on doors. As far as I can tell, they also did not see Jill with her. The last neighbor to see her was a couple who lived close to her school. The people who lived next to them weren't home at the time, and no one else admitted to seeing Brandy after she knocked on that last door. If the story about Brandy going to the grocery store is false like the family believes, then this is the last confirmed sighting of Brandy. If the grocery store story is true, then Brandy left that house, walked a good 20 minutes to get to Smitty's, and met up with Jill somewhere along the way. About a month after Brandy's disappearance, an arrest was made in a serial rape and murder case. A 32-year-old man named Scott Lear was arrested for seven rapes and three murders that began in February of 1991. The accusations were that he abducted and sexually assaulted 10 girls and women and he had murdered three of them. Immediately, the media connected him to Brandy because he lived only half a mile away from her house and the three surviving victims were around Brandy's age or even younger, with the youngest being only 10 years old. He was later convicted of three counts of first-degree murder, three counts of attempted first-degree murder, two accounts of aggravated assault, seven counts of kidnapping, and 22 counts involving sexual assault. The victims in all of these cases had willingly got into the vehicle with him, taking rides from this seemingly friendly stranger. Two or three said he had a baby car seat in the back of the car, and I imagine this would make him look like more of an everyday guy and not a threat. So we have to ask, would Brandy have gotten into his car? She was naive and trusting, so she may have. Except I'm not sure how likely it would have been that she would have taken a ride when she was that close to her house. Whether she was by the school or by the smitties, she wouldn't have been that far from her actual home, and that's the big unknown here. Aside from proximity, there isn't a lot connecting Scott Lair to Brandy's case. He was arrested a month after she went missing, and nothing in his vehicle or home connected him to her case. The possible link was reported in articles announcing his arrest, so we do know that they were looking into it at the time. I read through a website on Scotler's conviction that claims he has been wrongfully convicted, and it raised the question if these rapes were actually the work of multiple men. The police linked them as a serial case, but if it wasn't, then that opens up the possibility of nameless, faceless suspects preying on young women in the Phoenix area at the time. Other than a blanket investigation into known pedophiles in the area, including one who lived near the Smitties, there didn't seem to be many leads in Brandy's disappearance and assumed abduction. Brandy's case eventually grew cold, both the investigation and the media reporting on it. We've seen it before in the newspaper archives on cold cases where the articles go from daily to monthly and then there's just the annual anniversary article. Then eventually they only hit on the big anniversaries like 10 years or 15 years. A lot of the times the families are the ones who push to even get that out. And for many years after Brandy's disappearance, her family wasn't even able to do that. Brandy's family, to put it simply, they fell apart. Some adults turned to substance abuse as an escape. This left Kristen, who was only 11, with a shell of a childhood. The happy family from before Brandy went missing disappeared into everyone's grief. Kristen herself became addicted to drugs, but has since become sober. For years, she denied that Brandy's disappearance really impacted her life that much. But when she was getting clean and finding the root of her substance abuse issues, all paths led back to that day. 
And that realization is what lit a fire in Kristen. She was ready to be that family member who would advocate for Brandy. She was ready to start calling detectives and the media. She was going to do interviews and open her life and her family's life up in order to find justice for Brandy. I even saw her tracking down Nancy Grace at CrimeCon, trying to get Brandy's case on her show. It was in 2015 that everything changed. Kristen received a call from the detectives. She had a good relationship with the detectives currently assigned to Brandy's case, and they were keeping her updated as best they could. This time, they were calling to tell her that there had been a major break in the case. An arrest had been made, though it wasn't for Brandy's disappearance. Rather, it was for two other cold cases from the same area, from the same time frame, and they believed this man was also responsible for Brandy's disappearance. Brian Patrick Miller had been arrested for the murders of Angela Brosso from November of 1992 and Melanie Branis from September 1993. Both women had been brutally murdered and dumped in an Arizona canal, giving their killer the moniker the Canal Killer. DNA from each victim linked the cases to this single perpetrator, but without a profile to match it, these cases went cold. Well, at a professional conference, investigators learned about using familial DNA in cases where the perpetrator's DNA profile is known but has not yet been matched. This is the same idea behind how the Golden State Killer was found. And a name we've heard before comes up here. The same forensic genealogist who helped identify Laurie Erica Ruff and Joseph Newton Chandler Colleen Fitzpatrick used publicly available DNA databases and detective work to narrow down the family line of the perpetrator. She narrowed the suspect down to the paternal surname of Miller. Miller is the seventh most common surname in the United States, so this may not have seemed like a lot of help, except detectives had a long list of suspects and persons of interest, but only one of them had the surname Miller, Brian Patrick Miller. They obtained a DNA sample from him by testing an item he had discarded. When the match came in, he was immediately arrested and charged. With Miller looking like a potential serial killer, authorities started looking at him for other unsolved murders that occurred near where he lived, and Brandy's name came up. Obviously, with no body and no crime scene related to Brandy's disappearance, there was no DNA to match. But it was Miller's ex-wife who made the connection. She didn't even suspect her ex-husband of being a murderer, but she did give police information on Miller and things he said during their marriage. She said his sexual fantasies were violent in nature and he would often say disturbing things. She thought much of what he said was his fantasy and not reality, so she never reported these stories to the authorities. It wasn't until he was arrested that she considered that maybe these stories were true and not his sick fantasy world. When he was arrested and she was interviewed, she told police that these stories in the event they really were connected to crimes. One of the stories were very close to the circumstances of Brandy's disappearance. And a quick warning here, this confession that Miller allegedly gave to his ex-wife is a bit graphic, but it's fairly necessary to the story, and these are details Kristen shared with Charlie openly, so we know the family is not against them being out in the public. 
Miller has not confirmed that he made this statement. But according to what the ex-wife said, a girl with some type of special needs or intellectual disability knocked on his door doing some type of fundraising. So straight away, this gets the interest of the detectives. Both of these things were in the media, though. So yes, maybe the ex-wife could have gotten these details from the Internet. But why would she? She's being interviewed in the wake of her ex being arrested for murder, and she has this information just ready to go. It's not like she had months to look up cases to try to pin on her ex. Anyway, believability aside, this part of the story gets pretty graphic. So if you're not interested, I suggest hitting the fast forward button a time or two. I'm going to go through it pretty quickly, though. So the story is that Miller pulled Brandy into his home when she knocked on the door. He began stabbing her and he slit her throat. He decided he wanted to keep her body to fulfill some of his sick fantasies, so he put her in the bathtub and turned on the water. His plan was to use cold water to slow decomp, but he accidentally turned on the hot water in his excitement. Of course, the warmth sped up decomp instead of slowing it down. He did keep her body long enough that neighbors complained about the smell, and he realized that he had to get rid of her. He dismembered her and put her on the curb in trash bags. The neighbors made a comment about the foul-smelling trash, and he said that it was rotten meat. Garbage collection was the next morning, and Brandy's remains went to the landfill. If you remember from the sightings of Brandy, a couple who lived near the school were the last ones to see her. The occupants of the house next to them weren't home. The very next house, well, that's where Brian Patrick Miller lived. He lived just two doors down from the last house that reported seeing Brandy. The family firmly believes this is what happened to Brandy. They do not doubt the confession and the circumstances fit. It effectively ends the search for Brandy's remains for them. After 26 years in the landfill, her remains will have been removed, buried and reburied. There is virtually no chance of recovering her and her family has worked on accepting that. Detectives also found this confession to be believable and they followed the lead as far as they could. They took a forensic team to the house Miller was living at at the time. But in 26 years, the house has been extensively remodelled, including the bathroom. With a story about putting her body in the tub, that was their focus, but even the tub has been replaced. They swabbed down into the pipes in hopes that some evidence could be found. Really, even the smallest amount of Brandy's DNA being found would be huge since her DNA had no other reason of being there. If there was any evidence in those pipes, 20 years of people running hot, soapy water and cleaning products down the drains destroyed it, and nothing was found. They had a second location to search, though, the home Miller lived in at the time of his arrest. Serial killers occasionally keep trophies, and nothing of Brandy's was ever found. Perhaps he kept something like her glasses as a reminder. If they could find something belonging to Brandy among his possessions, that would go a long way to corroborating the story. There's a little problem, though. A pretty big problem. Miller was a massive hoarder. And I mean like the TV show. It was difficult for police to sort through what items may have been of particular interest and what was just a collection of junk. Finding evidence from the early 1990s when he had moved several times and accumulated so many belongings, it was a long shot. Also, Miller had a teenage daughter living with him at the time. A lot of things that may appear to connect Miller to the deaths of young teens could simply be her belongings. 
An interesting side note, though, it's been widely reported that Miller stabbed a woman in 1989 or 1990 when he was still a minor. He would have been 17 years old. I found one media report that mentioned the juvenile center that he was sent to. It's the same one Shannon Amok had been sent to in 1991 and 92. So I have to wonder, did their time there overlap? Was he released in time to be considered a suspect in her murder? I have to assume that this has been looked at by authorities, but this just stood out to me as quite the coincidence. But let's quickly go back to that tip about the grocery store in Brandy's case. If Miller did keep Brandy at his home long enough for the smell to be noticeable to the neighbours, she would have been there while police were searching the smitties and the surrounding area, which was blocks away. There is no guarantee they would have found her at Miller's house that night or even the next day. But had they concentrated on the path between the home and the school that she took, there might have been a chance. If this is how it played out, that false tip could have been the difference between getting Brandy's remains back and not. That's the huge what if that we really can't dwell on too long because it's too late to change and it only adds to the grief in this case. Detectives have taken Brandy's case to the district attorney twice, and twice the DA has said that they don't have enough evidence to bring charges against Miller. He wants more, but as Kristen pointed out, it's been 26 years. There isn't going to be more evidence, and she believes that the circumstantial evidence is enough. She would like to see Miller stand trial for Brandy's case alongside the other two he is currently charged with. If what Brian Patrick Miller's ex-wife said was true, then the family has their answers, even though they don't have justice. And Kristen doesn't care so much about Miller getting additional time for Brandy's murder. If he's convicted in the other two murders, he'll never be free. But Kristen specifically wants an acknowledgement of what happened to her sister and for the right to read her own impact statement into the record. And for Miller to have to sit in court and hear it. As it stands today, there are no other named suspects in Brandy's disappearance. Brandy was just 13 when she went missing. If she was alive today, she would be getting ready to celebrate her 40th birthday as we're recording. She has blonde hair and blue eyes and needs thick glasses to see well. She has a scar on her cheek and her upper left knee. At the time she went missing, she was also small for her age, and having met her sister Kristen, I can imagine she would have also been small as an adult. If you have any information, you can call 1-800-THE-LOST. If you want to help Kristen get more attention to Brandy's case, follow any updates and learn how you can help the family get this case in front of a jury, we recommend following the Justice for Brandy Myers Facebook page. <laughs> 